Hi, I'm Yolanda Brown and welcome to LPO Offstage. This is the podcast that finds out what goes on behind the scenes of the London Philharmonic Orchestra with the musicians themselves. Today, we'll be jumping into the world of Mahler and what it's like to play his symphony number one or his Titan symphony, as it's also known. Now, we're joined today by horn player Martin Hobbs, harpist Rachel Masters and Juliet Borza, who plays the flute. And at the time of recording, they've all just got back from touring, back on the road again, finally, from Turkey. But you left early hours of the morning. Is that right? All a bit blurry eyed. Yeah, we, we, we don't we, know what time it is. <laughs> Well, I'm so we glad that you're... Bags and dries, anyway. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Welcome, Martin, Rachel and Juliet. Thank you. Hi, lovely to see Hi. you. Hi. Now, I want to get personal. I want to find out how your relationship with the symphony began. So, Juliet, what was your first experience of playing Mahler and when did you encounter his first symphony? Well, I have to admit that I've only played his first symphony once. Amazing. <laughs> um, I played it, yeah. <laughs> the first time I played it was with LPO last year and it's really sad because it was um it was actually on something like the 20th of march last year it, and we were it, about it to go was on the 11th. was it the 11th oh, there we go it, yeah i, I looked, <laughs> I looked it up, up just before and we yeah, were yeah. and we were about to tour it around germany it was with robin Ticciati conducting and it was absolutely i mean for me it was absolutely phenomenal i loved it so it was really really sad obviously I mean, obviously, we were sad on many levels um, that we couldn't go on tour and what was happening. But mm-hmm. at that time, but um, it was it was really sad that we couldn't tour it and, and play it. So I'm looking forward to many more performances of it. It's a piece that I've I've loved for a long time listening to it. So it was finally like this opportunity to perform it and um, and sit amongst it, the sound yes. world. I was in the National Youth Orchestra and the European Youth Orchestra as well, and um, I grew up playing lots of Mahler symphonies through that. But then in my professional career, I've I've been in a chamber orchestra prior to playing with LPO and um, and so my my Marlowe experiences was, were the kind of smaller condensed versions and some other chamber versions of his symphonies such as Symphony Number no. 4 um, so to finally get the opportunity to play some of his bigger symphonies with LPO in my position is just amazing and um, I love it every time it comes up every time we get to play one of these bigger symphonies so so Rachel what was your introduction to Marlowe's first symphony can you remember your your first experience of it? Actually, unusually, I can. I was in the garden. I was a teenager. I'd been in the National Youth Orchestra and, and sort of met other musicians and I'd started talking about orchestral music and discovering all sorts of music that I'd never discovered before. And I, I remember it was a lovely sunny day and I was in the garden and uh, I had the radio on, which in those days was very, you know, to be outside with a radio way back <laughs> in the 1970s, you know, that was that was something. I remember listening to the opening of this symphony for the first time and I was just completely blown away by it. I'd never heard anything like it. That's one of the few things I remember these days. <laughs> um, I can't remember when I first played Marla One. It may well have been with the LPO because... When I joined the orchestra, we were still conducted by Tenstedt and um, Heitink, God rest his soul. And at that time, I was experiencing many of Mahler's symphonies for the first time. To me, it is one of his more intimate pieces because later on, his harp writing becomes much more complicated and he uses two harps and you're battling to be heard and it's technically much more exacting. But early on in Marla 1, the writing is simple. It's not used in the large passages at all. 
he only uses me in the very quiet moments of this symphony, um, and I think it works. Later on, he uses us in texture in larger symphonies, and I sometimes question whether yeah. it is actually worth it. But with Marla One, what you see, what you hear, is an instinctive understanding of the sonority of the instrument because he knows exactly how to use the harp. Brilliant. He knows exactly when it's going to carry through the orchestral texture. Uh, he uses um, maybe just one simple high octave just to punctuate the sound. It's not in the least bit challenging, but placing that ting at the right moment is immensely challenging. And you need to have learned to breathe with the orchestra and hear the sound you're trying to make before you make it almost in order to place it absolutely right. And it's a hard thing to do. Well, I want to delve a bit deeper into how Marla writes for your instruments. But Martin, I can't leave out your personal journey, please. When was your first introduction to Marla's First Symphony? And and what does it feel like to play with all those horns? Well, it feels good to have lots of horns, yeah. Actually, fun fact, I think this is the only piece in the repertoire that uses seven horns. Really unusual number. Wow. We're usually four or eight, occasionally six, occasionally three. But uh, I think this is the only one for seven. I'm sure someone will um, find another piece that has seven horns. But as far as I know, there there isn't. So, yeah, Marla One, my first experience, I was actually quite young. We played it in my youth orchestra, Hampshire Youth Orchestra, when I was about 15, I think, 15 or 16. And, you know, I hadn't been playing the horn so long. Our youth orchestra, we used to sort of basically do one piece a year and rehearse every other weekend and then do a residential course and then three or four concerts afterwards. So we found out Marla won, which I'd never heard of Marla. But well, I'd sort of have a listen to it and thought, wow, this is great. Lots of stuff for the horns to do. This, This sounds exciting. Yeah, I think as a teenage horn player, you like that kind of repertoire where you've got lots of stuff to to show off Mahler, Strauss, Bruckner, that kind of thing. I think as you get older, you uh, begin to see the difficulties. Uh, in what sense? <laughs> it doesn't really get any easier. You just get a bit more experienced. I mean, this Symphony Mahler one, it has a range of, I guess, three and a half octaves for pedal Fs up to top C for most of the players. And then obviously you need to, you need to sort of play at extreme dynamics very quietly in the opening. There's the famous duet at the beginning where it's beautifully written. You know, he, he writes lots of things in thirds and sixths and octaves for the horns. So it's um, all very lovely. Um, throughout his symphonies, there are moments like mm. that. But the opening of the first symphony is, is the sort of famous one. Now, Marla really, he doesn't hold back when it comes to orchestration and especially for the the wind section. What does it feel like to be packed in like that? I mean, to have such big sections in the horns and in the flutes, but then also to really bring this music to life in that way, Martin. 
It feels great. It's good to be surrounded. You know, we have, have people all, all around us, great big wind section in front. I mean, generally in the section, everyone has something to do. You have little solos and, and the, the section playing as well. I mean, there's a good bit towards the end of the first movement where we have these arpeggios and it's always a really fun bit to play and actually not terribly difficult. So that's that's good as well. And when there's more of you, do you feel you have to work harder or can you pull back a little bit? So if we have yeah seven or eight horns, usually the five, six, seven and eight don't have as much to do as the front row. So I guess, you know, when the back row get going, you can ease off a little bit. But uh, normally in the heat of the moment in a concert where you're, you're getting excited, you tend not to. I think, as Martin said, you know, the parts are all individual parts. And so everyone has quite a lot to do, you know, in all of the individual parts are actually soloistic moments and texturally as well as exposed solos and then when you do play as a tutti and you're really going for it in the loud stuff and everything's more in you know there are unison moments yes it's brilliant to kind of get that be all amongst that sound world but at the same time it has its own challenges as far as blending and tuning and all the rest of it but it does mean that you can do things like staggering the breathing um, in the wind and staggering the moments where you can just kind of regroup Rachel, earlier you spoke about playing this piece under different conductors. How does it compare with different conductors you've played under? How much does the conductor change how this piece flows? Hugely. Do you know what? I'd like to make an announcement. I'd like to broadcast this to the world. Yes. Many conductors come in and say, right, well, okay, this time we're going to have those instruments over there and I'd like to swap this round and have that over there. And, yeah, sure, it has um, an impact. It is interesting. But the reason the harp is so often cited where it is, which is sort of towards the, roughly between the first and second violins in a traditional setting, slightly downwind from the wind and the horns in front of the percussion. Do you know what? There's a reason for that. And uh-huh. it's because it works. And it's because as a harpist, I can hear the melody line from the violins. I can hear the accompanying line from the second violins. I'm seeing the bass and the cello on the other side of the orchestra. I'm downwind from the flutes. I've got the percussion behind me. I've got the horns to my left. And, you know, conductors come in with their own very, I'm sure, valid reasons for why they think this would work. But we are the people who are playing it. We are the people who are listening and having to react to what we hear which is, after all, what orchestral playing is. And sometimes when they're trying to position us because they think, oh, that's going to work, that's going to work, they're actually stabbing themselves in the back because they make it so hard for us to do our jobs, we can't produce the sound they want to hear. Well, you've heard End it here of first. broadcast to the nation. Thank there you. There you go. Announcement there from Rachel. <laughs> keep the instruments where they are. I mean, you know, some, the some, sometimes there are valid reasons. Yeah. Sometimes there aren't. You were asking about different conductors and the impact they have and do they have an impact. Yes. Every time uh, somebody picks up a baton, they have their own body language, their own inner pulse, their own mental approach to the music. And it, uh, I mean, it directly affects the way you finish a phrase, the mm. way you breathe before you start a phrase, the way you shape it. The t- and it's not as simple as, oh, it's faster or slower. It's much more nuanced than that, you know. 
And Martin, with Marla, he has quite a lot of information in the score as well for, for you to, to contend with. So how does that work, working with different conductors, also with the direction in the score? Do you feel restricted when you play this piece or do you still have that element of interpretation? No, there's a lot of element of interpretation. I don't feel restricted at all. Yeah, there is an awful lot of information. And it's difficult to play absolutely every nuance that's on the page. He tends to sort of write these bulges in the sound, sort of a crescendo, diminuendo, and writes a lot of those in a phrase. And if you were to actually play it like that, it probably would not sound terribly musical. Some conductors in, insist on this, and we don't generally like that because I think with the horn you like to play a, a smooth phrase, and this sort of in, interrupts it. Uh, kind of the crucial thing for me is the opening that I was talking yes. about. It's quite a long phrase, and I've played it with some conductors, and it can be terribly slow, and you're in danger of running out of air. And the phrase happens twice; the second one's slightly longer, and. Um, I made the mistake of years ago we were on a tour which was meant to have been conducted by Kurt Mazur, but he was ill and cancelled, so we had various replacement conductors. And one of them, the opening was really quite slow. And I made the mistake of, before the next performance, bumping into him and uh, saying, any chance of keeping it going a little bit? Oh, you wow. Know, nearly running out of air. Ah, yes, fine, yes, yes, do that. And of course, it didn't ah. at all. And <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he was looking at me as a... So, yeah, I, I won't make that mistake again. What we generally do is first time through, if we're finding it a little bit slow, just kind of think, right, OK, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep it going. We'll, we'll do it at our speed. And not much they can do about oh, it, really. Oh, the power just, of just the sort of orchestra. Us, so. I love that. <laughs> uh, well, you just, you, you, just uh, you know, when you're sitting next to someone playing that kind of thing, you've got a bit of a sixth sense. And if you can sense they want to keep it moving, you, you, just, you just keep it moving. Which bit are you um, talking yeah, about, Martin? It's our, it's our first entry. I'm not going to attempt to sing it, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's on, a, on, our, on our second line. It's, it's after the sort of offstage trumpety bit. <laughs> And Juliet, I mean, if you see a piece of music that has been written, the composer has set out what the directions are, and then you have the conductor saying, oh, no, we're not going to do that. How does that feel? Because, I mean, the composer would have had an intention and wanted to hear it in a certain way. Does that feel strange to think that the conductor's going against that? Yes, it's usually quite strange when a conductor kind of completely goes against a composer's wishes. And, and to be honest, it tends to be more the opposite. As you were saying, though, there's a lot of information in the parts and in the score. Marla has so many indications, there's tempo indications and dynamic indications and phrasing and all the rest of it. And I think um, it's trying to interpret it to make sure that it's still got the character. For example, in this piece, say let's say in the... Um, in the waltz, in the second movement, the waltz section, it's it's the ebb and flow and the rubato within the within it, the tempo, um, and um, I think to play as a full unit doing all of this and still having a sense of line and having um, a sense of direction to it, so it's not kind of overly stilted and overly pulled up and everything feeling a little bit seasicky. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's still got to have a long phrase as well. The difficulties are things like that when you're playing it, because often it's not necessarily technically 
the most challenging. I mean, obviously there's going to be challenging bits in it for everyone, but um, but it's it's actually managing to get this sense of um, everything he wanted from the music and um, the character behind it all, but at the same time creating an overall sense of line where we're going with the whole piece. And you spoke earlier, Rachel, about sort of balancing of sound, especially with such a large orchestra in this. And you said Marler wrote very well for, for the harp for this piece. Does he write well for the horns, do you believe? He writes really well. He does get what the horn can do, although he does push it to its limits. I mean, I can't imagine how it must have been at, at the time, what the horn players thought when he, he turned up with with all mm. of this to play. Because Brahms was very conservative and, and he wrote so well, but always within a certain range and uh, dynamic. And Mahler just sort of really pushed the boundaries right from the word go. He probably had a, a particular horn sound in mind. The spacings of the intervals and all the duetty bits that he writes and and for the section it it blends well he has some effects he asks us to play with mutes which you know makes the distant sound he asks us to play hand stopped where we cover the bell completely with our hands rather than just putting our hand in it which makes the brassy metallic sounds he uses that quite a lot in the first symphony High, low, um, the Frere Jacques tune, when it comes back in the different key, he has all the horns playing in octaves, very low. It goes very, very low for the low players in, in that. It's a really good mix of stuff. Finally, Juliet, how does Marla write for the flutes? And do you feel that you have to push above this great expanse of sound or does he give you the space? Um, well, again, he uses all the whole range of the instruments. So um, on the flute, you know, we're often given a melody part, which is very, very low down on the instrument. You know, often I have a solo and then it's really low in Mahler. And, but then we're also shimmering at the top as well. He writes really well for the piccolo. The piccolo is hugely important in this symphony and um, in lots of Mahler's writing. I think he uses three piccolos in this he uses flute number three and four both double piccolo and the second flute has it in one bit in the in one movement I think as well has to play piccolo so lots of doubling going on so um but he uses the piccolo not just for the loud writing as well the piccolo starts off at the very start of the symphony with this interval between the a and the e that he writes at the very start Rachel, with this piece, when it was first performed, the audience reaction tended to be moderately to extremely negative towards Marla. Why do you think this was? I think they'd never heard anything like it in their lives. And they Mm. were thinking, what? (laughs) Okay, and what's happening a few bars later? And then you've got, you I mean... Yes, Okay. so when is this piece going to start? You know, they must have been sitting there twiddling their thumbs, thinking, well, what's going on? Everything sort of filters in. The movement, I mean, mean, I've just got my part here. For me, the symphony starts after figure four, when I actually come in with a D major chord. And in fact... It's not, and sorry to be technically musically nerdy here. But when it starts, because you're playing in fifths, open fifths, you don't actually know 
what key it is. It's very modal. Is it? Is it a major yes. key? Is it a minor key? You know, it's all very, you know, could could go either way. And then after a lot of um, stuff going on off stage, trumpets and the horns and the church and then double bass and timpani and you know quite a lot of sort of stuff, you get to um, D major and. You've got the celli, dum bum 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 bum. That's the first time you hear that, and I punctuate the end of that phrase with a. Funny enough, it's still an open chord, a fifths, but by then, we're very clearly in D major, and that's the first time. So they must have been sitting there thinking, well, um, where's Beethoven gone? You know, what, what's Mozart up to? I, I just think the first time this piece was heard, it must have been very out of people's comfort zones. And in that sense, it's Titanic. Mm. And then, of course, you go into the second movement, which is um, much more standard stuff. Or, or, you know, the, the Landler type thing. You can really get a handle on that. But then there's a trio and it goes a bit off. And what's going on? But comes back. Then the third movement, I'm sorry, double bass solo. Oh, I mean, really? <laughs> bit of Frere Jacques in minor for us. What yeah. is, you know, I mean, and, 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 the, and the, the, is it Klezmer, the, the um, yes. Jewish-style music, comes in. I mean, whew, steady on, old chaps. And a bit of folk music. I mean, you know, hello, what's going on here? And the end of the movement, third movement, finishes very quietly. And everybody's going to sleep. And then all of a sudden there's a massive thing. And you probably auntie has a, a heart attack in the first row here. And the last movement would have been off the scale weird until it sort of eventually calms down. It ends just fantastically triumphantly and very conventionally, actually. Almost disappointingly conventionally, I would say. That sums it up perfectly. That really, really does. Thank you so much, Rachel. And really takes me back to what the audience would have been thinking at the time. You know, he first completed his first version in 1888, but was still making revisions up to 1898. What is the complete work? Would you include that original second movement or would you bring it down to the four movements and how he saw it at the end of the 10 year revision? I think I'd go with the version we hear these days with four movements. It's quite common these days for people to kind of try and find and play other versions, you know, the historic versions of um, symphonies by various composers. You know, we do it quite often. You know, we go to version whatever from whichever year. And, you know, you always think to yourself, well, surely there was a reason why the composer (laughs) (laughs) um, edited this. Um, But he was young when he wrote the symphony and it's also on his part as life kind of went on as he he decided to um, edit and and change it. And because I think at the beginning, he actually spoke about it quite often as a tone poem as well. And he, it was all descriptive, you know, so he described all the movements and then possibly that was also something he realised was maybe challenging for the audience in that they didn't hear it the same way he was picturing it when he mm. wrote it. And and so he maybe had a, a vision when he first wrote it with this second movement and then realised that actually it was possibly kind of muddying the waters a little bit for the audience who was listening to it in a different way than he was. And so therefore it would be easier just to cut that and just think of them as, as a symphony and think of it as an overall whole work. Well, I want to ask you what your personal favourite parts of this symphony are. Is there a favourite musical quote or reference that you have within this piece? And also maybe a favourite movement? And this will also prompt our audience to delve into that a bit deeper. I'll go to you first, Rachel. You look deep in thought. 
<laughs> I don't have a lot to do in this symphony. I spend a lot of time listening to people. And personally, harp-wise, no, I don't have a particular moment in this piece. But I find the opening of the symphony just amazing. The way it just evolves from a single note. If you sort of imagine the opening of the piece, just those a single, it's an A, isn't it? I yeah, please, it is please tell me I've got the note right. But, you know, it couldn't be a thinner texture and then you go on this immense journey and you finish with all this razzmatazz at the end. I mean, I just think the opening is, is breathtaking in its concept of the way all this develops from that. I don't know, I think for me maybe the key moment is when we finally get there in the last movement there have been a few attempts at getting to the climax of the symphony and then he, you know, he backtracks and goes all quiet and slow again and then eventually he really gets there and the whole room takes off and I'm not doing anything there. It's <laughs> <laughs> along for the ride. <laughs> um, yeah, and, it, and, you know, it's amazing to be part of that. I mean, obviously I'm not part of that, but I'm on the stage and I'm with everybody else and they're doing their thing and it doesn't really actually get much better than that. You cannot replace that by sitting in the audience. You have to be on stage doing it. You're feeling everybody's emotions and feeling the vibrations and hearing all those sounds and those textures. And so that for me is great. There's a particular moment where we're rehearsing it. I don't know whether I'm giving away trade secrets here, but quite, quite often there's a cheer. We <laughs> get there and everybody in the orchestra goes, hooray! You know, oh, um, obviously we're not allowed to do that in live performance. You know, uh, are um, we? Oh, but I mean, you know, actually, you don't want to sit there in your black looking poker face. Do you actually want to get up and go, yeah, we made it? <laughs> oh, that, thank you for sharing that. That's really nice. I can imagine that. So, Martin, favourite sort of musical ingredient in terms of the sounds that Myla creates within the orchestra and also favourite musical reference or quote. I know Wagner's in there as well. I was going to say my favourite bit, which is where the horns get the tune at the end, where Rachel was talking. And um, so it's the descending fourths that have opened the symphony and they come back when we have a tune, but in the major. And we get to stand up when we play. Is that written <laughs> in your score? It is written in the past. So why, yeah. does he want to, uh, why does he want the horns to stand up? Well, I don't know. One of our conductors is always talks about the theatre of things on stage, and maybe it's part of the theatre, standing up, maybe to project the sound yeah. better. Because quite often in, in his symphonies, Mahler asks us to lift the bells of the instrument, to raise the bells. So, so we're sort of up to project the sound a bit more because obviously our bells point downwards and we blow backwards. So, you know, it's uh, sometimes more difficult to project. So I think that helps with, with projection. <laughs> Interestingly, he never asks us to stand up again in any of the other symphonies. So I'm just wondering how well it actually went. He forgot to rub that bit <laughs> out in his revision. <laughs> yeah. um, I can imagine, you know, horns standing up and music stands flying all over the place and chairs falling over and, you know, bottles of beer rolling down the stage in, in, the, in the first performance. But um, that is a fun bit. Although, actually, the very moment where it's written in the part is very difficult to stand up at that point because there isn't any rest. So we're playing and then we stand up. So uh, you, you can't really do that very well. Thank you. 
me do it, I could stand up too and sort of do a bit of a boogie because I'm not doing anything there. And, and I can see all you guys getting ready to stand up. And actually, I think it does make yeah. a huge visual impression. I think what it's saying to the audience is, we really are there now. You know, I know you've had a bit of teasing going on here, but this really is the climax. And, and I, I think I think it works, actually. But I, I'm sure I, the audience would love it if you did that, Rachel. Well, it would be so it, it much might, more fun. Yeah, it might take the attention away from us, though. Ah, this is true. Oh, now it's never a good idea. No. (laughs) (laughs) And Juliet, your favourite musical moment or movement or reference? Well, I have to say that, you know, probably everything that everyone's already said, um, you know, I'm repeating myself too. There's so much within this symphony and um, so many amazing musical ideas from the very opening, the tingles of the very opening through the dance sections, which, you know, always gets me going. I like to have a little dance in my chair. And then um, (laughs) through the beauty of his, you know, quotes from his songs from The Wayfarer as well. And some really beautiful melodic moments there as well, which kind of, you know, just so warm and spine tingling as well but then as the climax you know the big climax that's where we're going and that's what everyone's come to hear really and we get there at the end and the horns stand up and they're right behind me and yeah I think you know it makes everyone want to smile and um, you know we've got to the end there and it's an incredible journey and we've uh, made it together and I think it's just incredible music so Thank you so much for your insights. We've been referring to Marla for so long, so I've been looking forward to doing a deep dive, especially into this symphony. And I am a fan. You've you've really helped open it up for me. And I can't wait to hear the LPO perform it again live. I think that would be quite emotional considering where you last played it, Juliet, as well. Definitely. I can't wait. And I think we're all, all looking forward to playing on that scale again. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Juliet Borza, Rachel Masters and Martin Hobbs for their insights into what it's like to play a Mahler symphony with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod. I'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage, where we'll be discovering how the musicians actually acquire their instruments. See you then.